Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we continue our studies through Luke's Gospel. We come this morning to chapter 9 and the verses 10 through 17. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, reading through verse 17. Please give your attention to God's Word. On their return, the apostles told Christ all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. About 30 years ago, one of the popular movies in theaters was called City Slickers. Yes, that was 30 years ago. You are old. Billy Crystal played the main character, a guy named Mitch, who was about to turn 40. And as he was preparing for his birthday party and enduring the midlife crisis, his wife finally convinced him that he needed to get away. And so she sent him with his friends out west to take part in a cattle drive. And one day while they were driving the cattle to market, he was riding on his horse next to the crusty old trail boss named Curly, and he started complaining about his ordinary life. And Curly finally looked at him and he said, Mitch, do you know what the secret of life is? He paused a moment, then he held up one finger. He said, this. Mitch said, your finger? He said, no, one thing. One thing, just one thing. You stick to that. And so Mitch asked the obvious question. What is the one thing? And Curly said, that's for you to figure out. Yeah, postmodernism has been around for a while now. (laughs) Find your own truth, make your own meaning, find your own purpose in life. For Mitch, after going through all the trials and tribulations of the cattle drive, decided that the one thing he needed to cling to, the one thing that gave his life meaning and purpose was the love of his family. It's a nice message, but is that sufficient to give meaning and purpose to life? 
I'm speaking to you who are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. My question for you is, what is that one thing for you? What is that one thing that you need to always remember to keep you going in life? The one thing that you cling to to give your life meaning and purpose. What is that one thing? You know, that's what a midlife crisis is, isn't it? It's, you know, you grow up and you're given this checklist of things that are important that you need to accomplish in life. And so you start checking them off. You get your education. You get a wife. You get kids. You get a house. You get a pension. And you get to the middle of your life and you've checked off all those boxes and you say, is this all there is? I've checked off all the boxes. Is my life all downhill from here? Do I have any meaning and purpose to the rest of my life? That's what a midlife crisis is. 2020 has been a difficult year for all of us to varying degrees. We've been deprived of a lot of things that we enjoy, a lot of things that we depend upon. In-person worship services, working, going to school, going to outdoor gatherings, Sporting events, college football, going to festivals, toilet paper. Lots of things that we feel we depend upon, we've been deprived of. And so it's a good time for us to be asking that question, what is the one thing that we cannot do without? We've been looking at Luke chapter 9 as we've seen that Jesus is intensifying his training of his disciples here. He's preparing them, training them to be his spokesmen, to be his ambassadors for his kingdom once he's resurrected from the dead and ascends to his throne as the king of the universe. He's preparing them for their ministry. In the beginning of the chapter, we saw how he instructed his disciples and then sent them out on their own mission trip, sent them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, sent them out to cure people, to heal people to meet needs. And then here in verse 10, as we begin the passage we looked at just a moment ago, his disciples have returned from their mission trip. And they're giving reports about how God had used them, what successes and failures they had faced. They're reporting to their Lord and Master. But we're going to see that the training continues. And as the next great event that happens in the ministry of Jesus Christ, we're going to see that he is going to basically act out a parable for him. He's going to do a miracle that will give them a powerful visual image that will stick with them for the rest of their lives. You know, there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. Only two miracles are recorded in all four of the Gospels. One of them is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The other one is the feeding of the 5,000. That's how important this miracle was to the apostles and how important this miracle was to the early church. Matter of fact, archaeologists, if they have uncovered where the early church would meet in catacombs or wherever they would gather together for worship or Bible study, in those places often you'll find drawings on the wall of loaves and fishes to remind them of this very important miracle. This miracle is a picture of the one thing. That's why I bring that up. 
It's a picture of the one thing that a disciple of Christ clings to to give meaning and purpose to life. And that is the absolute, unrelenting, inexhaustible sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting how Jesus begins to teach this lesson. He actually takes the apostles aside, takes them away to show us that he, Jesus Christ, is the one who is sufficient to give us rest, real rest and refreshment. After he listens to their short-term missions reports, it says that Jesus took them and withdrew. He took them and he withdrew. In verse 10, it says that they withdrew to a town called Bethsaida, but then later, one of the disciples in verse 12 says, this is a desolate place. So they didn't literally go to the town. They went to a region, a wilderness area near the town of Bethsaida. This was the normal pattern for Jesus' ministry. Press forward for the kingdom and then withdraw. Press forward and then take a strategic retreat to rest and refresh. That's the cycle of our Lord's ministry. That's the pattern he set before all of us in all of our individual ministries, whatever they are. Press forward for the kingdom and then retreat, withdraw. Jesus would pour himself into teaching and healing and serving others, and then he would retreat in order to pray and to draw near to his Father. And by that means, he would restore his physical strength, his emotional strength, and his spiritual strength. Yes, Jesus was the eternal Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. But when he added to his divine nature a human nature and dwelt in our midst, he became fully human with a body and soul. And so, yes, Jesus would become weary physically as he did his ministry. He would become emotionally drained as he poured out his heart and life into the lives of other people. And he needed to rest. And so where did he go? He would go always into the wilderness. A place away from people. Away from the responsibilities of his calling. Away from all the distractions. So that he could pray. And seek his father's face. See, most religions in the world have some form of retreat, some form of quiet, solitary meditation. Most religions have some form of it. But I'm here to tell you that the secret is not in being in a quiet place. The secret is not in being away from distraction. The secret is in seeking the father's face. And that's why we put the distractions aside. So that we can look to the father we can draw near to him. That's what Jesus taught us to do. And if he needed it, if he needed that repeating cycle in his life and in his ministry, I guarantee you that you need it. Jesus was teaching his disciples the necessity of retreat in order to recharge. You and I need to spend time daily in the word of God reading it, studying it. We need to spend time daily in the word. We need to spend time daily in prayer, seeking the Father's face. 
It's not the ritual that will strengthen us. It's the Father who will strengthen us through the Spirit of His Son. And periodically, we need to be able to take a retreat. Not just an hour in the morning, not just half a day, but take several days and get away. Put away the distractions. Leave the cell phone. Leave the computer behind. Leave the television behind. Get away and seek the Father's face. Sometimes, in order to be recharged, in order to be strengthened, in order to be restored to usefulness in ministry, we need to get away. That's what Jesus taught his disciples, and that's what he's teaching us. Are you feeling weary? Are you discouraged in your ministry, in your calling, in your life, in your relationships today? Are you drained? Are you, have you lost a sense of meaning and purpose? Why are you here? What's it all about? Withdraw. Seek the Father's face. Jesus is teaching us that he is sufficient to give us the rest that our souls need, the strength that our souls need to be and to do what he's called us to be and to do in this life. But what's interesting is, in, this, in the way things play out, and Jesus orchestrates all this as a lesson. He's teaching, remember, everything he does, he's teaching. When Jesus and his disciples arrive, they basically sailed from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. When they arrive at the other side, the same crowd that he'd been ministering to all day on the western side is there to greet him on the eastern side. What's interesting is that in John chapter 6, it says Jesus withdrew in order to recharge himself and his disciples, but the people that he'd been ministering to and pouring his life into actually see him and his disciples get into the boat to cross the sea, and they run around the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee so that they're there to greet him when he arrives. Now, I don't know about you, but I know what my reaction would have been if I was one of those disciples. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Go away, people. This is my time. But what does it say Jesus' response was? It says he welcomed them. He welcomed them, and he spoke the truth of the word of God to them, and he healed them. He ministered to them in a time of weakness. Jesus wasn't a workaholic, but Jesus was driven by true compassion for the needs of broken sinners like you and me. In Mark's account of this miracle, he says that as the boat came to the shore and Jesus saw these massive crowds gathering to welcome him, it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had a compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Could you imagine if everybody you encountered in any given day had kind of a word cloud over their head that just kind of described where they were at and what they were going through in that moment? You know, you walk by somebody on the street and you see a word cloud over their head that says, just had a fight with his wife or just got fired by his boss or somebody struggling with mental illness, just heard that their parents have died in a car accident. You know, if you could just see a word cloud that would show what that person was going through, maybe your heart would go out to them more than it does. You wouldn't see them as intrusions into your life. It says that when Jesus saw crowds like this that were seeking him, 
He says he saw them as helpless and harassed sheep that need not just a shepherd, but the shepherd himself, the one who is fully sufficient. And so this really is the second part of his first lesson, isn't it? That Jesus is not only sufficient to give us rest and restoration, rest and restoration, but Christ-like compassion will empower us to reach out to the needs of the people around us even when we are at our weakest point, when we are drained, when we've got no physical, emotional strength left, that the compassion of Christ can overcome that in times of need. Jesus said on one other occasion, he taught his disciples by saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his purpose. But then we get to the main lesson, this visual image, this object lesson that teaches the truth of what is the one thing that is most important to your life, to my life as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus is sufficient to meet every one of our true needs. Jesus is absolutely, totally sufficient to meet every one of our true needs. The interesting thing is, again, comparing the accounts, all four gospel writers tell this story. In Mark's account, he tells us that Jesus and his disciples had not been able to meet during that day-long ministry the day before. Before they got in the boat to go and rest and recharge, they had not been able to eat that whole day. And so here they are, they get to the other shore and they're thinking about their meal and they're not able to meet for another whole day as Jesus continues to teach and heal. And so late in the day, the disciples understandably come to Jesus and they plead with him and say, please send these people away. We're starving. We need to eat. Jesus, you need to eat. Send them away to find food and a place to sleep. Sounds like the way it's worded that they're really concerned about the people, but I'm sure a big part of it is just their empty stomach saying, please give us a break. At this point, Jesus gives them an outrageous command. He says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. John tells us that by saying this to his disciples, he was testing them. He's training them, and now he's testing them. There were 5,000 men, plus women and children, we don't know how many, thousands that need to have their their needs for food and rest provided for. Philip, one of the disciples, does a little bit of math in his head and he replies incredulously, eight months of wages wouldn't be enough to give each person even a little bit. Andrew, one of the other disciples, takes inventory and he finds a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish and he brings them to Jesus and said, this is all we have, Jesus. This isn't even enough to feed us as disciples, let alone thousands of people. What was the test? What is Jesus testing his disciples about? He's making them look at their own inadequacy. He's showing them that they do not have the resources to meet the need that he is asking them to meet. And if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, that's part of your mission. 
You are going to be continually asked to meet needs that you do not have the resources emotionally, intellectually, or materially to meet on a regular basis. But Jesus Christ is unrelentingly, inexhaustibly sufficient for every need. That's the test. That's what he's trying to teach them. And so then comes this visible parable, this object lesson, the image that will be imprinted on these disciples' minds for the rest of their lives as Jesus takes their paltry little resources and multiplies them thousands fold to meet the needs of these people. It's interesting that it does say that Jesus, before he distributed the food, it says that he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over it. Is this a lost discipline in the church today? Do Christians, disciples of Jesus Christ, say a blessing before a meal anymore? Do we pray and thank the Lord for his provision? This has been the practice of Christians all the time, way back to this first century. But I feel like in this generation, we've lost that to our own detriment. One commentator said, ingratitude is the root of sin. Do we take for granted, because we have stores and stores of food, do we take for granted that the Lord provides every meal for us? Jesus set the example. Jesus thanked the Father for providing this meal that he was about to multiply. And then, so Jesus then, having prayed and thanked the Father, it says he broke the food in pieces and he gave it to his disciples so that they, in an orderly way, could distribute it to all of these people. At this point, the gospel writers don't satisfy our curiosity, do they? We would love to delve into the physics of how this miracle took place. But they tell us nothing because they want to keep the focus on the one who's providing. They want us to keep our focus on the one who is sufficient for all our needs. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't just give them a snack to tide them over till their next meal. It says in verse 17, they all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. I don't think they probably had to worry about where to sleep after they had a meal that filled them up completely. I'm sure they just curled up there on the side of the lake and napped. They were rested and refreshed, having all their needs met. What does this miracle teach us? Well, John's gospel, thankfully, gives us our Lord Jesus' own interpretation of his miracle. In chapter 6 of John's gospel, he tells us that the people, after Jesus fills all their needs, they do what sinful broken people like you and I would tend to do. It says in, in John 6, verse 15, they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. They really missed the point. <laughs> you know, that's a socialist dream, isn't it? You know, have a king or a government that will heal all your diseases and provide for every meal. You know, it's better than universal health care and food stamps, that's for sure. That's what they wanted. A very selfish, you know, what can I get out of this? Jesus says you've missed the point. Matter of fact, it says at that point he withdraws from them. 
says, you, you, you're totally on the wrong page here. You do not understand. But a little later on, he does confront them. And it's over in John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Listen to what he says. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And so the people say, well, okay, give us that food. Well, what is that? We don't know what that is, but give it to us. But you have to work for it? Well, what must we do? What work must we do to get this kind of food? And Jesus responds by saying, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in the Son of God who is sufficient to meet all your needs. You want food that will last for eternity? You want your needs to be taken care of? Believe in the one whom the Father has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. And lest there be any doubt about the message of this miracle, Jesus makes the claim just a few verses later in John chapter 6, where he tells us that the miracle of the loaves and fishes was meant to illustrate this point. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I want you to notice that the language there is present tense. From this point on, if you believe in me, I will meet your true needs and satisfy you. I'm not talking about in the new heavens and the new earth, some point way off in the future. He's not talking about when we die and go to heaven. He says, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, the one who is sufficient to meet all of your true needs, you will not have real hunger. You will not have real thirst. Your needs will be satisfied. What else would we expect? God's word tells us that Jesus Christ was actually the Son of God who created all things. By the power of his word alone, he called into existence all the beauty and glory and complexity of this universe. And the Apostle Paul tells us that he sustains this universe day in and day out. A God, the Son, who can do that can certainly multiply a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a meal to feed 10,000 or more people. Certainly he could do that. Jesus is the one, the New Testament tells us, who provided the manna for the Israelites in the wilderness and the quail when the manna wasn't good enough for them. Jesus Christ is the one, according to Paul, who was the rock, who was the one who gave them the water that they needed in the wilderness. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 tells us this. Jesus Christ is the same today and tomorrow, yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It reminded me of a little poem that I came across earlier this week, written by Warren Wearsby. Just a little ditty, but I found it very meaningful. It goes like this. Yesterday, God helped me. Today, he'll do the same. How long will this continue? Forever. Praise his name. I memorized that. It's going to be helpful to me.
Because God is faithful and Christ is sufficient. He will meet every true need in your life. What does that mean for your life? How does this work out practically in your life? A life that I'm sure you would say has a lot of needs. Well, the Apostle Paul applied it to his own life. Very familiar words over in Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul understood the message of the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. Christ is sufficient for all our true needs. And how does Paul apply that to all of our lives? What he has learned, what he has experienced, how does he apply it? It's in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the one thing you cling to no matter what you're going through in life. You might say, though, but I have so many unmet needs in my life. I mean, if I had stopped you before you came into church this morning and said to you, what are the needs that you face in your life right now? You probably could have given me a pretty significant list. How do we reconcile that with what Paul and Luke are teaching us here about the sufficiency of Christ? Even Paul himself, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he lived most of his life in times of suffering and deprivation in, in many different ways. So how could Paul say this? Well, I have a very simple answer to that question for those of you who are saved by grace, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, all of you whose sins were paid for at the cross, I can tell you without any reservation that if you have unmet needs in your life, it's only because Jesus Christ loves you. He loves you. And he shows that love for you by allowing you to experience unmet material, relational, emotional needs in this life. You see, I know for a fact that if you're washed by the blood of Christ, if you're born again by grace, you truly are trusting in Christ, then I know for a fact that the needs that you have in life are not a punishment. I know that. Because the scriptures tell me that if Christ died for your sins, you cannot be punished for those sins. He's already been punished for them at the cross. So any need, just think about that for a second, any need that you have in your life right now, you know for a fact it's not a punishment from God. And the only alternative to that is you have a need in your life because he loves you. Well, how do you understand that? How does Jesus love us by allowing us to have unmet needs in this world? I think there's four possibilities. I want you to consider four possibilities. He's training you to be a disciple, just like the 12 apostles. He's training you to be a disciple. The first possible lesson that he's teaching you by your unmet, unmet earthly needs is to show you that your faith is weak and your prayers are lacking. 
to quote James, you have not because you ask not. Maybe that's what he's trying to teach you. Maybe you're not truly seeking him to meet this unmet need. Second possibility. Maybe you have unmet needs in your life and the Lord lovingly has allowed that to happen because there are sins. Sins in thought, sins in word, sins in deed in your life that need to be addressed. And like a very loving, careful, honest father, he's disciplining you, teaching you to turn away from sin and turn to him for mercy and for obedience. Maybe that's why you have unmet needs. A third possibility. Maybe the Lord is teaching you to depend upon him. There's no specific sin in your life that that you're being disciplined for. Maybe he's just taking something out of your life that you think you need so that you can learn that all you really need is the sufficiency of Christ. That's part of discipleship training. Fourth possibility. Maybe you have unmet earthly needs in your life because God is using you as a witness to other people and you don't even realize it. Because in your life, what is going to show, what is going to testify to the all-encompassing, inexhaustible, unrelenting sufficiency of Christ more than when you have unmet needs, but you're okay with it. You're at peace. You're content because Jesus is sufficient and he will meet all your true needs. Maybe somebody in your life that you aren't even aware of needs to see that. I've sat beside many hospital beds where people were suffering, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ were suffering greatly. And I've watched the witness that they have had to the nurses, the doctors, and the people who visit them because in their suffering, they are showing that Jesus Christ is sufficient even when life itself might be taken away. That brings us to the final lesson for Jesus' disciples. And that's that Jesus is not only sufficient to meet all of our true needs, but Jesus is sufficient to enable our ministry to others who have true needs. This miracle is a picture of the Lord's superabundant grace. And did you notice at the end, it's kind of a throwaway line, at the end it says there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Twelve baskets of bread and fish left over at the end. Now, of course, that's just saying, you know, God's grace is super abundant, and that's a message of Scripture. But it does beg the question, why twelve? Well, of course, it's a training session. He's training the twelve disciples. There's a basket for each one of the disciples, full of leftovers. What's the lesson in that? He's trying to teach all of us that after we have served others, Jesus will continue to pour grace and truth and life into us so that we can be empowered to pour our lives into other people. As we depend upon Jesus Christ daily, he fills us with wisdom, with strength, with resources so that we can take his truth to other people to show them how sufficient he is. That's what Paul was trying to teach the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me read this passage to you. Listen to what he says. He's talking about giving of financial resources in context here, but it's about any kind of giving, emotional, material, 
relational giving that you have in your life. And listen to what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God, listen carefully, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He goes on to say, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Listen carefully to what Paul said again. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That's the lesson of the 12 basketfuls. After the disciples, in their time of weakness and hunger and frailty, ministered to the needs of others, Jesus gave each one of them a basketful of leftovers to say, I will meet your needs as well. Keep giving. Keep giving. You see, the prosperity gospel people have it all wrong. Yes, Christ is super abundant in his grace. And he distributes it freely. And he loves us immensely. But we are not to be repositories of his gifts. We are not to, to, to block up the system by just receiving all these good things from him and just saying, thank you, Jesus, and, 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 and enjoying our private little lives. We are to be open channels of his grace. We are to be pipelines through which, as he pours himself into us, we are able to pour ourselves into other people. One commentator that I read this week says, we are channels, not sources. Sometimes we fail in ministry because we try to be sources. And we only have meager resources, which are totally inadequate for the needs but we are channels of the grace of Christ, which is sufficient for all the true needs of everyone around us. We need to come to Jesus. Bring our meager gifts, abilities, resources, energy, efforts, and give them to Jesus and watch him multiply them by his great sufficiency and power. So the final quiz for you guys today. What is the one thing that you, as disciples of Jesus Christ, need in this earthly life? What is that one thing? It is the absolute, unrelenting, inexhaustible sufficiency of Jesus Christ. You can trust him to satisfy all your true needs as he sees them forever. And so let me end with the end of that Psalm 23 the one that's so familiar to all of you. Isn't Psalm 23 really a picture of what the, the miracle, the bread and loaves is all about? You know, the still waters, the green pastures, the shepherd's staff that leads you through the valley of the shadow of death. Let me just read to you the last couple of verses and I'll close with this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, our faith is so weak, 
And we are so self-centered when it comes to reflecting upon our needs. We thank you, Lord, that we are not left to make our own meaning and purpose and meet our own needs in this life. We're thankful, Lord, that you do see our hearts. You see us as harassed and helpless, sheep in need of a shepherd. And Lord, you are that good shepherd, the one who leads us by the still waters, the one who leads us to green pastures, the one who is with us in all the trials and tribulations of life, the one who has promised to meet our true needs, not just today and tomorrow, but forever. Lord, thank you. Thank you. Open our eyes to see the glory, the power, the love and sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.